You are listening to WTUZ Radio Podcast. Welcome to WTUZ Radio Podcast. I am your host, Rhonda. Uh, today's topic is not going to be new to anyone. Um, I want to discuss with the family real quick the gentrification of America. And the reason I'm bringing up this topic is... Um, twofold to once again just have people pay attention on their radar to what has already gone on in pretty much every major city in America. And the main purpose of me doing this particular podcast or topic is to once again point out that the wealth, the most important wealth, are two things. It's the people and the land. It always has been, always will be. So uh, what ran across my feed was a video that a um, trust fund baby Actually, it was a mini documentary that a trust fund baby made. Uh, he is a descendant of the Johnson & Johnson Pharmaceutical Company. And he made this back in 2010 or either 2011. And it's called The 1%. Uh, I highly recommend the video to everyone. I will definitely uh, put... Um, on the right-hand side of the screen, I'll put a link to the documentary. But inside the documentary, he touched on gentrification. Uh, but the entire video is about the 1% and their impact on the world and how the 1% uh, is vastly different from the 99% population. So I highly recommend it. But the part that I want to focus on for this particular podcast is gentrification. So uh, let's just real quick look at a couple things. Uh, just a second uh, for me, family. Getting my stuff together. <laughs> uh, just wanted to pull one more article. Uh, we're going to start with the gentrification in America report. So let me do a little bit of technology. All right, here we are. So this is from a site called governing.com. Uh, this came out in 2015. Gentrification in America report. Read our report on how gentrification has reshaped a growing number of urban neighborhoods. Okay, so this is uh, Columbia Heights in Washington, D.C. is one of the fastest growing neighborhoods in the country. Now, I 
throughout uh, my adulthood, I've known a couple folks from D.C. And uh, everyone that grew up in the D.C. area uh, that's melanated told me how D.C. was the hood, hood, hood. And specifically how the White House, you literally could go like one block over from the White House and it was hood, hood, hood. And I remember that would always trip me out because I'm like, but wait a minute, it's right by the White House. And then I remember seeing this cartoon where they were showing the White House and then right behind the White House. So they pictured the show the White House looking all pristine and pretty. And then behind the White House, it was a slum. And I remember what that, what, you know, two or three people told me throughout the years. And now fast forward and DC has been hugely gentrified, okay? Because DC was known as Chocolate City. So meaning most melanated people live there, okay? All right, so dramatic changes are playing out across parts of urban America, making many neighborhoods hardly recognizable from a relatively short time. A new class of more affluent residents is moving into once underinvested and predominantly poor communities. Development has followed, typically accompanied by sharp increases in housing prices that can displace a neighborhood's longtime residents. It's a scenario known as gentrification and one that presents a growing dilemma for policymakers. Two, assess the extent to which gentrification has reshaped urban communities. Governing analyzed census tract data for the nation's 50 largest cities Main findings from the neighborhoods examined include gentrification greatly accelerated in several cities. Nearly 20% of neighborhoods with lower incomes and high, I'm sorry, and home values have experienced gentrification since 2000, compared to only 9% during the 1990s. So that goes to show you right there when they ramped up gentrification, okay? All right, gentrification still remains rare nationally. It doesn't feel that way to me. With only 8% of all neighborhoods reviewed experiencing gentrification since the 2000 census, compared to lower income areas that failed to gentrify, gentrifying census tracts recorded increases in the non-Hispanic white population and declines in the poverty rate. Researchers define gentrification differently. For this report, an initial test determines a tract was eligible to gentrify if its medium household income and medium value were both 
in the bottom 40 percentile of all tracks within a metropolitan, I'm sorry, the metro area at the beginning of the decade. To assess gentrification, growth rates were computed for eligible tracks, inflation adjusted, medium home values, and percentage of adults with bachelor's degree. Gentrified tracks recorded increases in the top third percentile for both measure when compared to all others in metro areas. Where gentrification is occurring, a select group of cities experienced extensive gentrification in recent years. Perhaps nowhere were changes more visible than in Portland, where 58% of eligible tracks gentrified more than any other city reviewed. Okay, so uh, those that live in Portland, uh, I knew one person that lived in Portland and um, she grew up there. And uh, back when we were in communication, gentrification wasn't happening then. And she grew up kind of hippie style. So I would just love to hear her take on it. <clears throat> Comparing 2000 data to the most recent census, Estimates suggest at least half of lower income neighborhoods also gentrified in Minnesota. Oh, I didn't know that about Minnesota. Seattle and Washington, D.C. In terms of raw totals, the highest number of tracks, 128 gentrified in New York. Okay, so New York, it should scream out to us immediately, Harlem. Y'all remember when um, ex-pres Bill Clinton got his office in Harlem that was uh, after he was no longer president and people that really watched the real estate markets said then, get ready for gentrification in Harlem. And they were absolutely right. That was the start of gentrification in Harlem. And since then, uh, shoot, most of the places that were known as predominantly melanated or inner, inner city or rough in New York, not all of them, of course, a lot have been gentrified. Um, shoot, I remember uh, the, 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 the neighborhood that Spike Lee I don't know if he still lives there. I think it's Fort Greene. Yeah, Fort Greene has been gentrified in New York. Um, I think they're saying, I don't, don't quote me. I think they're starting to gentrify. Is it uh, called Brownsville where Mike Tyson grew up? And that was supposed to be really, really rough, rough. And I don't know New York like that, y'all. I only know certain parts of New York that I visit, which would be considered, quote, quote, the touristy <laughs> areas. Um, so New York is definitely, has definitely experienced gentrification. It is still one of the most expensive cities in the world to live in. I think it's second to... San Fran. Um, so really, really interesting. So let's continue. The following table shows cities 
gentrification rates and track counts for the period since the 2000 census. All right. Ooh, child. Portland at the top of the list. So y'all see 58%. D.C. is next. Now, this one blew me away. I didn't know Minneapolis was like that, y'all. Minnesota, it's too cold for me. I can't do it. Although it's pretty with all those lakes, but y'all, my southern blood can't do it. Seattle, Washington, that doesn't surprise me. Now, Atlanta, Atlanta, Hotlanta. Child, I was there when Atlanta started with the gentrification. I witnessed it firsthand. Literally, when I moved to Atlanta, uh, the city was not the place to be. You had to literally know somebody to move in a city like that because the way the uh, everything was by neighborhoods, okay? So it just wasn't safe, y'all. Literally, so people that typically move to Atlanta back up in the day, you would move to the suburbs, uh, specifically the north suburb, you know, Marietta, Smyrna, all of that jazz. Y'all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> By the big chicken. <laughs> Everything was towards the big chicken, away from the big chicken. And so we started to see a change. Now, in Atlanta's defense, just a tad bit, Atlanta did make an announcement. I remember specifically, Mayor Shirley Franklin did a little special with the little news people when they started to, um, those developers started coming in, redoing those buildings and putting up new buildings, Shirley Franklin literally did a walkthrough of those properties and was telling people to come back to the city. My mouth about dropped because I had never witnessed that before regarding gentrification. So in Atlanta's little defense, Early in the game, y'all, they gave disclosure. Because Shirley Franklin was talking about the um, aquarium that was coming. Because the Home Depot, the, the founders of Home Depot built that aquarium, y'all. She literally put people up on game and told them, come on, start coming. Uh, we were trying to bring people back to the city. Yada, 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 this, that, and the third. Okay, so now all of those areas, fam, um, which just still blows my mind over there by the zoo, uh, which is uh, called Grant Park. You have Grant Park, and then the zoo sits there. Yeah, y'all. Country Minnesota, so literally the zoo is in the city. That's considered the east side. They told me they used to be the hood. I said, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, what? Huh? Wait a minute, what? how the zoo gonna be in the hood? They're like, we telling you this used to be the hood. Child, let me tell you something. You try to go to Grant Park now, 
to buy a home, you're lucky if you can find something at 300000 okay? But beautiful neighborhood. They really done did it up. Gentrified all day long. Uh, not too many new homes there. They really um, refurbished those existing old school homes, okay? Made a total neighborhood out of Grant Park. Uh, nice restaurants. And I do have to admit, that's like my favorite neighborhood in Atlanta. I do have to admit, you can get your exercise on, just a nice vibe, your little coffee shop, this, that, and the third. So that's just one example. Uh, there's another place on the east side. Dang, y'all know what I'm talking Y'all that's from Atlanta, y'all know what I'm talking about. Um, now they got the golf course over there on the east side and, um, some of, they held a bunch of, um, hot shot golf tournaments, but child, they used to call it some type of name, honey, where whew, if you wasn't from over there, you literally was scheduled not to make it out of there. And dang, I forget the name of it. Uh, I think that may even be decab if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Those are just two of the areas. Uh, I do know that, um, where they had the Atlanta Braves, the Atlanta Braves are no longer in the city of Atlanta. They put it in Cobb County, which that's a bunch of bull crap. Uh, but they were trying to gentrify that area um, right around the time I left, I think they succeeded. I think we have an article that's going to talk about that. I think that's People's Town, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, but bottom line, I've witnessed them literally gentrify Atlanta. I saw them close down project after project after project. Literally. And as I started to, um, of course, get to know people, was cool with people, and um, started to know people that live in the city, I would encourage them, hold on to your homes as long as you can. Um, do not sell it for nothing. Because they are coming. And of course, some people... Didn't understand it. What are you talking about the projects? I'm like, trust me when I tell you, do you see what's going on? And sure enough, that's what happened. Because in Atlanta, there is no more what you call projects. And that's around uh, America in general. I think New York may still have them just because there's not a lot of land in New York, but yes, I literally witnessed them gentrify Atlanta, and it is still going on in Atlanta, okay, so that doesn't surprise me that Atlanta is what, fifth on the list, okay, Virginia Beach, Virginia, okay, Denver, Colorado, I remember a, a lot of um, young Caucasians moving to Denver. Ooh, child, I remember this back in the 90s. 
when they started moving to Denver. Uh, so that one doesn't surprise me either. Austin, te Texas doesn't surprise me either. A lot of uh, young Caucasian people moving to Austin, um, like artsy, and I think music, if I'm not mistaken. Y'all know Cali, chow. I just know, you know, Cali is Cali. Sacramento, New York, actually, I thought would be higher on the list, to be honest. Oakland is another one that I heard about the gentrification going on in Oakland. Philly, Albuquerque, New Mexico. I know a lot of people were retiring there. San Diego. Uh, child, I don't even know when San Diego was ever affordable. I'm talking back since the 90s when I was visiting. I ain't never known it to be affordable like that, but whatever. Whatever. San Diego, um, although uh, beautiful, San Diego is absolutely beautiful, of course. Baltimore, now I ain't finna lie, y'all. Every time I think of B-more, I think about roughness. I ain't even finna sit up here and lie. Knew a couple of people from B-more. Child, B-more wasn't no joke, and it's definitely about that life. Long Beach. I mean, it's Cali. That's not surprising to me. Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, yeah, I remember in the early 2000s, uh, Fort Worth was to me, it's a little suburby-ish to me. Not my cup of tea, but that one doesn't surprise me. Omaha, Nebraska. Shall I guess? <laughs> Uh, Nashville, yeah, I can see Nashville, Boston, San Fran, we know that's a given, although I expected San Fran to be a little high, higher on the list, but maybe because gentrification has gone on so long there. Houston, Texas, I can understand that. Colorado Springs, Chicago, okay. Jacksonville, Florida, okay, Charlotte, North Carolina, yep, Charlotte was another place I've witnessed uh, gentrification going on, LA, Phoenix, a lot of retirees in, uh, in Phoenix, Oklahoma City, child, whatever, <laughs> Raleigh, that doesn't surprise me, Kansas City, Missouri, Miami, Florida, Indianapolis, and Columbus. Um, now, Columbus, I'm literally, I literally witnessed it when I first hit here. And I kept telling people that. And they were looking at me like I'm crazy. I'm like, I know what I'm talking about because I watched it happen in Atlanta. And sure enough, it's happening in Columbus um, at a very, very fast rate. And now the city is talking about, oh, we don't have any affordable homes. And I'm like, no blank, Sherlock. Because in Columbus, uh, they have a lot of young folks coming out of school with Ohio State University. And they're getting... Um, 
you know, nice jobs, making a good income, plus professionals moving uh, to Columbus for the jobs because you have, believe it or not, a lot of uh, tech industry here because there's a lot of industry here. You have a lot of big retail here. Uh, matter of fact, I'd just say a lot of big retail are here. Um, so that's restaurants and apparel, clothing and insurance. Okay, so Indianapolis, I don't know what industry they have, but they're right next door to each other. Okay, so yes, I can vouch for that. And I literally saw that as soon as I got here uh, because Columbus was known for low cost of living. I mean, really low cost of living, but they always had the good jobs and, and the jobs pay competitive and the low cost of living is here. Now, the cost of living has risen, although they still have the good jobs, but the people that don't have a certain type of jobs are really, really struggling. Okay, so I can't vouch for Indiana or Indianapolis, but that's what's going on in Columbus. Milwaukee, uh, Arizona again, San Antonio, and uh doesn't surprise me, Texas is going to be on this list a lot. Texas is a place, to my, I can only vouch for since the 90s, if you don't have a job in Texas, you don't want no job. <laughs> That's just the way it is. Texas has a lot of industry there, a lot of tech companies there. Um, their tax policies is what attracts a lot of businesses to Texas. And their people don't pay state income tax. Okay. So back in the 90s, it was really, really uh, attractive to live in Texas. You got a lot for your money, this, that, and the third. So having Texas on this list, it does not surprise me. A, a few times, having Texas cities on this list a few times, it does not surprise me whatsoever. I expect for Texas and California to be on this list a lot. Child Fresno, child, let me sip this water. Now, child, Fresno, <laughs> those of you from Cali, y'all know y'all laughing with me, right? Because child, Fresno was just known as hillbilly and ghetto and just ratchet, honey. So I'm, child, they took my gentrification in uh, Fresno. Ciao. Okay, Wichita, Louis, Louisville, Dallas, that doesn't surprise, San Jose, Memphis, Tennessee, Chow, Memphis, another one. Cutthroat, stab, stab, cut, 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 cut. I didn't know Memphis was rough like that, y'all. Somebody had pulled me to the side. I was on vacay. Kicking it down, downtown Memphis on the little train, feeling the little vibe. 
I'm like, oh, this might be a little, a nice little place to chill. It's like, uh-uh, honey, don't let Memphis fool you. They will cut your throat. I'm like, what? I'm like, Memphis ain't rougher than Atlanta. Person looked at me, hmm, you better go ask somebody about Memphis. Uh, but yeah, I did hear that they are doing uh, gentrification in Memphis as well. Tucson, Tulsa, child, let me sip Cleveland. Yeah, I take that back because I think they're trying to uh, bring downtown Cleveland back. So if y'all in Cleveland, honey, you could get some of that downtown property. Go on and snatch you want something up and hold on to it. I forgot they were trying to bring Cleveland back. Y'all see Detroit is low. Poe Detroit. Chow. Poe Detroit. So that's, that. I don't know what they're going to do with Detroit. Because it sits in a good spot. Um, but you can see it's at the bottom of the list. Uh, Las Vegas is at the bottom of the list now for gentrification. But I remember back up in the day, in the 90s, Vegas was hitting. Uh, you had a lot of people moving. And then uh, El Paso and Arlington, they're claiming pretty much 0%. Okay, so that's the list of where gentrification is occurring. And uh, what was this article? 2015. Okay, so... So uh, this is the governing analysis of 2009 through 2013. Okay, so this was all the way up to 2013. And keep in mind, this was also during the time of the housing crash. Okay. All right. So this data is going to look a little bit different when they're probably going to publish the new data maybe hopefully next year sometime since we just did another census. So hopefully next year sometimes they'll they'll uh, get the new data together. All right. So while it has become much more prevalent, gentrification remains a phenomenon largely confined to selected regions, not yet making its way to most urban areas. In the majority of cities reviewed, less than one-fifth of poorer, lower-priced neighborhoods experience gentrification. If all city neighborhoods are considered, including wealthier areas not eligible to gentrify, less than one of every 10 tracks gentrified. Cities like Detroit, El Paso, and Las Vegas experience practically no gentrification at all okay i can't speak for el paso i don't know el paso like that but we know what it is in the d uh las vegas i would have to have somebody else speak on that i'm just guessing because it's already built up with all them casinos i just know back in the 90s it was a bunch of people moving to las vegas buying homes but I do know during the housing crash, also Vegas got hit pretty hard. Okay, so how gentrification is accelerated. The initial, the initial seeds of gentrification date back several decades in some communities. In fact, a British sociologist first coined the term 
gentrification in 1963. Gentrification particularly, particularly accelerated, though, in recent years as growing numbers of Americans opted to pursue urban lifestyle styles. Now, I'm going to say I look at gentrification now even deeper than what I did before. Sure, it is most definitely a social issue, and that's including um, economics and wealth and race. But I look at it also on a deeper level as uh, controlling the entire social, not even social, I'd look at it as controlling the people on the land, period. Okay? I look at it in the deeper sense of how resets are done, where they keep shifting the people around on the land and having people live where they want people to live, okay? So I look at gentrification now, like I said, in a much deeper thought, okay? Because it's just, if you think about it, you have a population that lived in the city for let's say uh, three, four decades, so 30, 40 years, and then all of a sudden, you have suburbs being built. Then a certain said population, you know, we can take from the 60s and the 50s, the white population started moving out of the cities to the suburbs. Now, you, we have the reverse migration. Okay, so meaning those inner cities or the uh, urban neighborhoods were left to melanated people. Okay, so the brown people, uh, it's where those neighborhoods were left. And now there is a shift where the suburban people, or if you want to say middle class, upper middle class, are coming back to the cities, okay? Now, as far as I'm concerned, people just don't wake up out of the bed and make those decisions. There's things happening behind the scenes in government and local government and urban planning and planning in general that make these moves to shift populations to different areas. Okay. All right. So. Okay, in recent years, as growing numbers of Americans opted to pursue urban lifestyles, the gentrification rate or share of eligible lower-income tracts experiencing gentrification was 20% for the period following the 2000 census, more than a double, more than double the rate of the 90s. Okay. 
Rates increased in 39 of the 50 cities reviewed. Okay, so they're giving you the little graph here showing you from 1990 to 2000, it was oh, gentrification out of the 50 largest U.S. cities was only 8.6%. Since 2000, it's been 20%. So yes, that's a huge jump. Some cities experience rapid gentrification after decades of little or no economic growth. Mm -hmm. In the District of Columbia, for example, 54 neighborhoods were found to have gentrified since 2000. Back in the 1990s, just five neighborhoods had gentrified in a decade when the city was dubbed the nation's M capital or taking people out capital. Okay, I got a talking code. Okay, to not offend the algorithms. Other neighborhoods began their transition decades ago. In San Francisco, for instance, few tracks were eligible to gentrify by 2000s as much of the city's housing stock had already increased in price. Okay, so yep, they confirmed what I said, that San Fran had been gentrified and priced out because I think San Fran is still one of the most expensive cities in uh, the United States. I think it's over in New York. It's important to know that Census Bureau estimates provide only snapshots of different times. So depending on when a neighborhood gentrify, it may or may not reflect in data over a 10-year period. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's understandable. Characteristics of gentrifying neighborhoods. Distinct differences emerge between neighborhoods that gentrify and those that haven't. Neighborhoods gentrifying since 2000 recorded population increases and became whiter with the share of non-Hispanic white residents increasing an average of 4.3% percentage points. Meanwhile, lower income neighborhoods that failed to gentrify experienced slight population losses it saw the concentration of minorities increase. They have also experienced different economic fates. Average poverty rates climbed nearly 7% in already lower income tracts that didn't gentrify while dropping slightly in gentrifying neighborhoods. Okay, so right here you can see the social and economic aspects of what is happening with gentrification, okay? And then you also have to remember and keep in mind how the United States currently, <coughs> excuse me, fund school systems. It's based on um, home tax revenue, okay? That's widely how schools our public schools are funded that that isn't the only way but that's the the most percentage so if you have higher home values that would mean more money for the schools okay so what makes sense why uh middle class and upper middle class neighborhoods 
their schools have a lot of funding versus inner city schools. Okay. All right. So see what they're saying in this particular graph. Um, figures represent average changes for each group results shown for all tracks in the 50 largest cities with at least 500 re residents. Okay. So do, 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 do. Okay. Poverty rates. Okay. Okay. Gentrify, gentrification eligible tracks, not gentrifying. Um, all tracks, including ineligible tracks, white, non-Hispanic shares of population percentage change. Okay. So gentrifying tracks, they're pretty much showing, um, white non-Hispanic share of percentage change, 4.3 poverty rate, point change, point, uh, 0.7. Uh, not gentrifying population change, negative 2.4%. Uh, white non-Hispanic of population change negative 5% poverty rate, 6.7. Okay, so they're just basically breaking down what they've already talked about above. So that's no big deal. Okay, uh, so let's see. Profiles of selected cities. Minneapolis, after experience, experienced little change, experiencing Little change during the 1990s. 39 Minneapolis neighborhoods gentrified over the past decade. Key drivers of the city's transformation are fairly typical of other gentrifying cities. Monsoon, the city's director of long-range planning, cited the role of infrastructure investments, particularly light rail, the park system, and new sports stadiums downtown. The timing of these investments, she said, coupled with recent national trends and valuing urbanity, or urbanity set the table for the city's demographic shift. Child, she done made up a word with urbanity. I don't even want to know. You just done made up a word, lady. But the point I just want to point out in this, notice the game. How I'm saying that populations, neighborhoods, where folks are going to live, where the populace will, will live, how they will live, are all planned. All of it is planned. Because she pretty much was saying the city, this is the city's director of long-range planning cited the role of infrastructure investment. So they invested in light rail. They uh, spruced up the park system or probably put new parks in there or combination of both. And what a new sports stadium downtown. 
So in other words, the city invested all of this money in there to bring the money back to the city. So meaning that would bring the middle class and the upper middle class and the wealthy back to the city. So they put all of those bells and whistles, making it a hip place to be, and hence people ultimately wanting to live. They are planning these things out at a city level and probably minimum, minimum planning it out on a 10-year scale, okay, to totally change the city out. 20 years but the master planners they plan these things out a hundred years in advance okay and if we really want to look deep into it that those hundred years and multi-hundred year plans They shift the population through catastrophes, i.e. the resets. So everything in what we're calling the modern slash urban life is controlled, okay? And it's not anything new. It's been going on for centuries. I would go as far as to say thousands of years, okay? Based on these ancient buildings that we are now starting to realize are ancient, okay? So gentrification is much bigger than what we think. We're talking worldwide. Okay? All you have to do is look at some of these ancient buildings around the world and look at the architecture and you can see that they are from the same empire. All right? Let's get, get it back, bring it back to the Americas. There has been a huge renaissance downtown. Yeah. You mean the renaissance, Monson, that you created? You mean that renaissance? And it has brought a lot of wealth. Empty nesters and investors. Young professionals seeking urban amenities are also attracted to the area's affordability. Okay. So I just love how they set up here in the middle. Oh no, honey. Yeah, uh-huh, girl. We did long range planning. We made some in infrastructures investment. Yep. We stood up light rail. Uh, we spruced up parks. We opened up new parks. Yep. And we also rebuilt the new stadium, gave the sports team tax breaks to stay downtown. But there's a renaissance. You mean a renaissance that you created? 
You mean the renaissance that you planned for? Oh, okay then, girl. All right, so Minneapolis gentrification map, 2000 census uh, to present. Uh, note, data shows correspondence to the current track boundaries, which may have changed from prior census, uh, census years. Figures are calculated from 2009 to 2013. Portland, Northeast Portland is home to some of the city's oldest neighborhoods. Okay, I didn't know that. Once characterized by an abundance of affordable housing and several predominantly child sedating, looked at me something new. I didn't know this. Let me shut up so I can read it. Once characterized by an abundance of affordable housing in several predominantly African-American neighborhoods, it is today one of the hottest parts of the hottest cities for young professionals. I did not know, child, that Portland was um melanated folks' neighborhoods originally. But why should this be a surprise to me? Because that's the reoccurring theme when we speak on gentrification in the urban areas. Other parts of the city experience similar revitalization. In all, 58% of Port Portland's lower priced neighborhoods gentrified since 2000, the highest rate of any city reviewed. Whoa. An initial wave started back in the early 90s and young professionals continue to flock to the city today. Yep. Portland, in some ways, was at the forefront of, re of the return to urban living, said Lisa Bates, director of the City for Urban Studies at Portland State University. The city contends with significant pressures in maintaining housing affordability and neighborhood diversity in the face of gentrification. And I think if I'm not mistaken, uh, don't quote me on this, but I think Portland now has a huge homeless problem. Bates said many former residents of Northeast Portland were displaced over the years, eventually moving to outlying communities on the city's east side. There is a lot of conversation here looking at other cities, she said, and saying that we don't just want to be the playground for wealthy people. But child, from my understanding, that's exactly what y'all are. All right, so uh, Portland's gentrification map, 2000 census to present. Note, data shown corresponds to the track boundaries. Yeah, we know from 2009 to 2013 survey. Washington, D.C., the district is home to some of the country's fastest gentrifi gentrifying communities. Neighborhoods gentrifying in recent years include Columbia Heights, Noma, Navy Yard, Petworth and Southwest for an in-depth look. Oh, okay. I guess I was supposed to be clicking on this stuff, y'all. <laughs> for an in-depth look at the changes to Columbia Heights neighborhood, see our story in the February issue. Okay, so I'm not going to read that. I'll leave this link in the description. So those of you in D DC, 
child, y'all can go on and look at that uh little extra article. It doesn't um uh, apply to you know, I wouldn't know what I was reading. Okay. All right. Okay, so uh there he was just giving us the rest of his sources. So again, this is from governing.com gentrification in America. Read our report on how gentrification has reshaped a growing number of urban neighborhoods. All right. So I want to jump real quick to what inspired me. I want to play a clip. Um, I got this from the website War Zales, but it's also... um, This is the uh, documentary I was telling y'all about called The 1%, okay? But YouTube also has it as a free movie, so you can get it either way. Um, I like to give other content creators a view. So you can catch it on War Zales. This is called The 1%. So I want to play you the, the, the entire documentary is great, as I stated, but I'm honing in on the part regarding uh, gentrification, okay? Uh, so let me share. Oops, I am sharing. Okay, child, I forgot I was sharing. Okay, so let's hit it. Million in this country. It's hard to say why that particular bullet was shot, but, you know, it's a neighborhood where a lot of things are changing, where a lot of people are upset, where people have been pushed out of their homes by real estate value, not being able to pay the taxes, whatever else. You know, I've tried to think about it. I've tried to think about if I were out there and someone else were in here, what would cause me to be resentful or envious. The south side of Chicago is one of the poorest inner city communities in America but now rich people are moving in and creating some serious changes in the neighborhood. Mr. Pants? Hey, Mr. Pants. Come on in, Mr. Pants. Pants. Mr. Pants is my second kitten. I had a kitten growing up, and when I went to get King, my first Mr. Pants, my father told me, you don't have to buy the first kitten, you see. Well, I walked in, he kind of came over and purred, and I was like, oh, I want that one, you know. First kitten I saw, I bought it. Well, buying a condo was kind of similar. I walked into this room, and I said, wow. You know, I've been in a lot of the coolest houses in Chicago. I've never seen a room like this. Let's get this condo. So I got with my dad, and we talked about it. And I said, wow, i got to, like, run to an ATM and get the deposit and whatever. I was just freaked out about it. Um, 30 days later, I owned the place and uh, haven't regretted the transaction since. It's a very thought-provoking place. You see the train go by and you're reminded that there are other places in the country other than Chicago. And you see what used to be housing projects and are suddenly condos and you wonder what impact you're having on the city and who lives here, who can afford to live here. 
It wouldn't be such a big deal if the change weren't so drastic. So these buildings used to be public housing. Now they're being taken condo. Sure, you put in new windows and you spruce the place up a little, but the fact is that someone who is using the public housing system lost his home for each one of these units that's being created. and everything and the new houses is too quick the subway right there all of this is i mean it's too quick it's too it's too um too make-believe to be true because um like five years ago you would have never dreamed that those nice uh condos would be there and then the subway would be there overall i think gentrification is a tool that solidifies the stratification of classes there are people who live in an area that becomes 100% people like them. Three big tools have been used in a lot of areas. First, you build a big police station. Secondly, you tear out all the basketball courts. And lastly, if there's a local public school that poor people attend, you tear down the school. They closed three schools up in our neighborhood. The little school, the high school, and a uh, baby school. Why? Close three buildings. I don't know. I don't know. I guess they're trying to push us out the neighborhood. It's 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 uh, decent people living the project. You know, pay their rent, people work. You know, everybody ain't the the enemy. Just so. Hey, what's happening? You live here. Yeah, I lived here approximately my whole life, 28 years to be exact. So. This is the garbage they put up here that they pulled have been taken down because the problem they had is fixed. This is our lobby. The phones used to work when the police used to have a police station right here. This used to be their police station right there. What happened to that? We ran them away. Well, the people ran them away because they was on BS. That's our mailboxes. Half of the doors don't lock on the mailboxes. Do I have any mail? I ain't checked the mailbox today. Oh, I got a bill. Yep, I got a bill from uh, Tribune that I'll never get the newspaper if they send it to me. The changes in the neighborhood is changes in the neighborhood around us, not to us, around us. We got one and a half school in our neighborhood. 35, 40 kids in one classroom with one teacher. He can't teach everybody all, you know, he needs some help. So that's why all the kids... When they go in class, if they ain't getting no attention, they're going to run away. This land is worth more than what the niggas over here can give them. So what can you do with them? Displace them, and the ones that you don't want over here, you get rid of them. You get rid of them. You know, and what you use as an excuse, use the drug dealers. You use the cocaine house. You know what I'm saying? Cocaine dealers. You know what I'm saying? You use the people that's over here doing nonsense to try to get rid of nonsense. We grew up as a family. You know, one building to the next building to the next building. You know, 
you can sit up here and talk all you want to, but yet still, we love our kids. This is my son. Come here. This is my son. Do you feel like your kids have an opportunity to get rich in this country? Hell no. Hell no. They ain't no rappers. My kids ain't gonna be rappers. They ain't gonna be, they ain't gonna be rich. It's easier to just cleanse the earth of these people, send them to the far reaches of the universe, and the mayor's office will build a big police station, build a bunch of townhouses, the yuppies will buy in and bougify it, and suddenly we'll have a community. Yeah, there'll be a bunch of people displaced. Yeah, there'll be... I just had to stop. Honey, he got a lot of nerve. I straight wanted to use some very choice words on him. Um... Sir, uh, you're not indigenous to this land. So these people, child, see, now this is the privilege I be talking about that make you cuss somebody out, okay? Because those people are these people it, that it's easier to get rid of. Most of them are indigenous to the land where you're truly not. And just your the attitude and the privilege of some of these folks that are coming in, gentrifying these neighborhoods, it's disgusting. And he's one of them. So I try to keep these podcasts clean, which I will keep them clean, because otherwise, baby, I would have lit him all the way up. All right? So I just had to stop that because I was just so disgusted with his attitude. There'll be a bunch of crime problems, but it's easier. We found the easy solution. Charles Darwin uh, did not invent the term survival of the fittest. That was Herbert Spencer. Uh, a social Darwinist who thought that if we just allowed the rich to get richer, uh, well, uh, that was good for society because we want to discourage the poor from having a lot of children and, uh, and, and basically surviving. That kind of social Darwinist notion has stayed alive uh, in uh, certain quarters, and I believe that it is there behind much of the economic policies we are now seeing. Look, there's never in history been a time when the ordinary people of this world, and particularly in the rich nations like the United States, Britain, and Europe, never been a time when the ordinary people have had the level of income and living that they now do. But what about the tens of thousands of people whose lives were affected by this decision? You can't decision. make an omelet without breaking eggs. You have a system which is overwhelmingly yielding good results. But no question, that every, there, it's not perfect, and there are cases and people will be get hurt, but that's true of any system. Doesn't it make you nervous when you see so many powerful and extremely wealthy individuals sitting there directly influencing those politicians when we're in a democracy? They're not influencing anything. They're, they're playing a role in the political system, but Congress is ultimately going to be influenced by public opinion, by what the public wants. The public will get what the public wants.
All right, fam. So uh, again, I highly encourage you to watch this documentary. I'm going to leave a link uh, in the description. So this is called The 1%. You can get it off of YouTube channel War. Uh, Celeste, the uh, young man, the younger man that was interviewing the old head, uh, it's his documentary. He is a um, Johnson & Johnson, you know, the pharmaceutical Johnson & Johnson descendant interviewing the one percenters. So uh, take a look at it. It is very, 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 very good. Okay. Now I wanted to play that to just show uh, just a snippet of what went on in Chicago. Those that are uh, familiar with Chicago or grew up in Chicago, such as myself, we understand the dynamics uh, we also know that Cabrini Green, which was the project that was featured in this documentary, was one of the roughest, not one of, was the roughest in Chicago and at one point was the roughest in the world or in the United States. Okay. So this was, that particular documentary was, uh, I think, put out in either 2010 or 2011. So they were in the process process then of getting people out of Cabrini Green. They were literally closing down projects across Chicago. And um, now Cabrini Green is no longer, right? They've officially closed it down, okay? Now, interestingly enough, I remember... Uh, because I have family who lived in Cabrini, my family, uh, we have one generation lived in Cabrini Green coming from the South, my parents, uh, so coming from South Carolina, coming up North to work and coming from Mississippi, uh, went and lived in Cabrini Green, I can't remember how many years, um, but the decision was made, nope, this is not the place where we want to raise a family. So that was the only generation that lived in Cabrini Green. And I can't remember how many years, y'all. I can't remember how many years, but it was just with my parents and then they were out of there and from what they were saying, that was back in the 60s. It was totally different than it was in the 70s going forward, okay? So we had uh, one last family members that was living there, and they were really like not blood family, but you know how that goes. Family is family, still living there. So we would go and visit them on and off. This was in the 80s. And, uh, you know, we felt safe because our family lived there and everybody knew our family and they knew not to mess with us. And it was fun. We were children kicking it, this, that, and the third. So I remember uh, being the oldest, me and my other cousin, we were like, oh, let's go. I forgot where we were going and we walked and it was just so close to downtown and 
that just always fascinated me. So when I came back home, I told my mom, I'm like, mom, you know, that just still just really trips me out how, how we're able to walk to, uh, downtown and it wasn't really downtown but close close enough downtown or the good part my mom said then now this was back in the 80s she said cabrini green sits on high priced land and i just you know i, I was i was a young child i didn't understand that yeah now y'all back in the day Gen, Gen Xers, child, we grew up a different type of way. So we was young and sunny, taking the bus, going distances. I know that's not how y'all raised nowadays, but that's just how it <laughs> that's just how it was back then, fam. So I was a, a, a young child. So for my mom to say, Cabrini Green sits on valuable land. And she said, quote, mark my words, they're going to move those black people off that land. Okay? Now, as she's telling me this back in the 80s, I didn't even know that she, she didn't all the way grow up there, but our family lived in Cabrini Green for some time. I didn't even know that until I got, like, in college, and it was, like, in passing, one of my aunts and them said, yeah, you know, when we lived in Cabrini, I'm like, ah, wait a minute, what? So it's like she knew what was going to happen. So when it started to happen, I just went back to her, and she... And I recalled that conversation. And she said, I said that? I said, yeah, Ma, you said that. She said, you remember that? I said, I don't know what made me remember it. I said, I think I was so fascinating, fascinated that you would say that. And I couldn't imagine how would how could that come true. Okay. So those of you that are not familiar with Chicago. You need to understand where Cabrini Green sat, okay? And it absolutely sits on valuable land. You also need to understand that those, quote, quote, projects, I can't speak for New York. I've never been in New York's housing authority buildings. I can only speak for Chicago. Those places are well built. Okay, so it would make perfect sense for them to turn them into condos. They are very, very well built. Fireproof and everything, because it's concrete and steel, y'all. Okay, even the row houses. Okay, because you hit the row houses. You got the short stacks, which are really just the smaller buildings, which I think my aunt told me that we lived in the short stacks. Can't remember that's my aunt on my father's side. I don't know on my mom's side if they lived in the high buildings or the short stacks. I can't remember, but I know what my aunt told me on my dad's side. 
but all of those structures were very well built. So you saw in the documentary when he was showing the one uh, housing project and how um, people were out of them and they were then starting to refurbish them. So it was no surprise to me once they start, started gentr gentrifying and they started uh, putting those things to condos because I remember what my mom said and I knew how well built they were. Okay, so those of you in New York, y'all can drop down in the comments and let me know because if you know the show Good Times from the 70s, exactly how they had Florida and James Nim apartment laid out, that's exactly how the projects looked in Chicago. Spit image. Okay? Spitting image. So those of you in New York, y'all have to drop down in the comment section and tell me whether or not that was y'all layout uh, in the projects in New York. Okay? So let's take a look just real quick. Gentrification in Chicago. This came out... Uh, in 2021, this is from a site called storymaps.arcgis.com. So storymaps.arcgis.com. Gentrification in Chicago, a lookout for Pilsen. In the history of Chicago, gentrification, the process of neighborhood change shifting for low income to more upper income throughout an influx through an influx of affluent resident and capital investments. Y'all see there go that capital investments has been undoing and disrupting communities since the late 1900s, especially the West Side. The child, I can't vouch for that West Side. We're Southsiders. Okay? So if you're from the West Side of Shy, drop down on the, in the comments and let us know if you have any experience on that or any of the neighborhoods. Okay? Only thing I can vouch for on the West Side, and it was the in-between gateway of the West Side and going into downtown is Oprah's studio, which was in the uh, the meatpacking district, literally. Okay. All right. And a lot of them um, old buildings, they say from the 30s and 40s. Now I'm going to have to go back through there and see if they were older. Um, literally the cobblestone streets. But uh, where Oprah had bought her studio was right between uh, the west side and the downtown. And then they also uh, built uh, the Chicago Bulls Stadium because uh, that and Oprah's studio were in walking distance. And, uh, you know, Oprah got the inside anyway. I'm sure she got that property for dirt cheap. And um, now that whole area, honey, is swagged out. Very swanky and nice. My mouth about dropped, baby, when I uh, saw over there, okay? So that's the only thing I can vouch for on the west side. 
of Chicago. I think somebody told me that Chicago, uh, on the west side of Chicago, when they hit the Chicago fire, uh, it was burnt down. Uh, so if y'all from the west side, y'all drop in the comments and, and give us some um, updates. All right. So has been undoing and disrupting communities since the late 1900s, especially the west side. The latest case being in the Northwest side, which includes communities such as Logan Square, Humboldt Park, and Westtown. Beginning in 2013, early talks and discussions were had to redevelop the abandoned, rundown, and former rail line that ran down Bloomingdale Ave and down the border line that separated each of the aforementioned communities areas into an elevated bike and walking trail. When the mayor, Rahm Emanuel, as the spearhead in tandem with the city support and collaborative efforts, the trail opened in 2015. Child, let me tell you, Rahm Emanuel, that man had a lot of power, a lot of power. He was put in place to get the city of Chicago back together as far as this gentrification is concerned. Okay, so child, let's look at this bike trail. Can I blow it up? Yeah. Oh, shoot. Let me see if I can blow it up for y'all. That's nice. So y'all see those buildings? Okay, we could say maybe they're from the 30s and 40s. Okay, but I have to take a deeper look at the west side to see what's over there. Okay, that, that walking trail is nice though, honey. I'm not finna sit up here and lie. <laughs> okay, while nearby residents were engaged, uh, I'm sorry, while nearby residents were eager for the constructive change and the introduction of vibrancy and social life to their communities, the opening of the 606, more formally known as the Bloomingdale Trail, brought socioeconomic ramifications they did not expect or plan for. Child, I could have told, I could have told them that. Y'all saw what they did to Cabrini. You thought you was exempt? All right, so they're giving a little map, the map of the 606 Trail uh, as seen laying on the borders of Humboldt Park and Logan Square. All right, so there you go, showing you. Okay, now I want y'all to remember too, remember Chicago was uh, the city for the World Fair. Remember that? Remember that? Mm-hmm. That World Fair that was all, that ran all along the uh, the lakefront? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That they claim that they built in, what, 10 years? But the scale of it was so massive and some of those same buildings still stand to this day? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Seems old worldish to me. But let's continue. On that note, let's get to the answering the first part of the research question. How did the addition of urban greening affect the gentrification of Chicago's northwest side and how could this have been reduced? According to related literature, the primary cause of gentrification are a handful. For one, job access has prompted the shift back within inner city limits as younger generations seek to be ever closer to the central business district. Due to the long working hours and shorter commute times, some researchers argue that young workers tend to favor time instead of suburban peace. Second, another major player in the powerful thrust back to the city is the wealth of opportunities for college, which that makes sense. Undergrads and the sheer number of amenities, <clears throat> amenities. In other words, the proximity to experience, be it social or academic, okay? Because uh, a lot of the universities, um, you have like the, the either the satellite universities are in the city of Chicago or the universities. The University of Chicago, which is, if it's not Ivy League, it's definitely one step under Ivy League, that is in the heart of the city. That's on the east side of uh, the city of Chicago. Not too far, y'all, from a lot of those um, old world slash world fair um, buildings and structures. Okay, matter of fact, that's going to make me pull some pictures on the University of Chicago um, campus to see what's up with that because it wouldn't surprise me if some of those World Fair buildings are still standing on those grounds as well. All right. Uh, so you have a lot of universities as well as uh, hospitals with a lot of medical schools and, and all of that. Okay. And that's not to mention, of course, uh, just a lot of um, employers, although that's changing a lot with folks working from home. But uh, Chicago's nightlife in the city has always been great. Always has been great. All right. Third, the decreasing crime rates I know, child, that's hard to believe we're talking about the shy, but the crime in Chicago is concentrated. It's concentrated in specific areas because what we have to remember, and I had uh, dudes put me up on game on this, when projects around the country closed down, you had... Um, all of the gang members or, or rival territories, instead of them having their own neighborhoods, they started, they were dispersed. So meaning they were mixed among each other. Because when those projects closed, families were given uh, vouchers, housing vouchers, 
So whoever uh, would take those vouchers, meaning the landlords that would take it, that's where folks would move, okay? So you had a mixture of uh, rival gang members or just rival folks that didn't like each other mixing in the same area. So those areas, crime rates started to rise rapidly, okay? So in the meantime, as always the case, the middle class, upper middle class, and wealthy areas, crime stayed the same, which was low, but the crime in the city, specifically these gentrification areas, started to decrease. And they were decreasing because the projects were dismantled, right? So third, the decreasing crime rates, which occurred most significantly during the 1990s, increased the attraction and perception of order in low-income neighborhoods. Therefore, neighborhoods once st uh, stigmatized and treated as if wild and wandering dunes were being looked at with fresh eyes and with envisions of urban uh, revitalization. This uh, goes to the fourth and relatively last cause, affordability. Affordability in tandem with the rich history of the neighborhoods and its buildings appeals to new residents, realtors, and rehabbers. For incoming residents, this is a potential money-saving opportunity. For realtors and rehabbers, this is money-making shot as homes can be retouched and upper priced. And so again, I know I've talked about this several times. Chicago in the city has absolutely beautiful architecture. I mean, stunning. The east side, the south side, up north. I can't really vouch for the west side because my people really wasn't on the west side like that. So I'm not as familiar with the west side, but the other side, you're talking family, those old world buildings, absolutely stunning, okay? Growing up as a little girl on the south side, uh, and this was way before it got really, really bad. This was in a black community. Uh, we lived in one of the old world buildings. It's called a two-flat. Okay, that's what they call them in, in Chicago, two flats. It was just two apartment, two apartments in one building, and then you have the basement. That place, it, it was absolutely stunning. It's still to this day, I can remember in detail, vivid detail, the woodwork. Just the woodwork in it. It's, it was just a stunning, beautiful place, very large. Um, ours was so old world that um, it still had the working um, furnace in the basement at where we had the um, the radiant heat, heating, uh, just the beautiful bay windows, the built-in bar in the back, it, it, just very, very beautiful, okay? And most of the homes on our particular block 
had the that same beautiful architecture, either the individual homes, because we had a mixture. We had individual homes and what you call two flats. We had very little frame homes. I think we only had one or two frame homes on that, the, uh, that block, and they were the worst-looking homes, and they were the younger homes. So it would make absolute sense that folks moving back into the city would snatch up those properties for pennies on the dollar, refurbish them, and then sit on them as a gold mine. And that's literally what they did in parts of the city of Chicago. Okay. All right. So, therefore, with these causes in mind, the impacts of the 606 were inevitable. Despite well-intended efforts, the development of green spaces and walking trails, in short, amenities, advanced gentrification, causing people with higher socioeconomic status to move in and, and in turn, the rent to spike up. All right, so what are they showing here? Okay, so they're showing the higher income, a map of the city. And they're showing the higher income, and I'm assuming <coughs> that the areas that are darkened are the higher incomes. And as it should, you can see the uh, areas closest by the lake um are uh higher income but those of you from the shot y'all know Evanston is is rich money uh etc cetera, etc cetera. so let me blow this up for y'all all right i blew it down okay so you can just see uh chicago and um blow it up So you can see uh, where the money resides, okay, based on the neighborhoods, okay? I just want y'all to keep in mind that, and I am going to get to doing uh, the old World Tech Hitting and Playing site on Chicago, that that World Fair uh, occurred in Chicago along this coast, the lake coast. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. Map one with census track data from the year two, 2010 shows medium household income helps provide insight into gentrification on the Northwest side of Chicago by setting the foundation for the analysis. In partnership with Map 2 and Map 3, the maps demonstrate the increase in medium household income over 10 years. Because the data is of tracks with overlays showing communities' borderlines, the nuances of change are especially evident. For example, Census Track 2301 to 2303, located on the northeast side of Humboldt Park had a medium household income of 38000 to 48000 
in 2010. Okay, so look, let's look at map two. Okay, so they're just uh, showing you a little bit more in detail um, the income and uh, the highest income are in the dark blue, and you can see it's concentrated along the lakefront, okay? And specifically, uh, I guess that would be considered north, okay? But you can see some sprinkles out west as well, okay? All right. Okay, let's see here. Ten years later, that range in value went up by more than 13% with a maximum of 20%. Overall, the area of Humboldt Park became more lightly shaded blue, illustrating how the community, all, the community altogether is becoming more at pace with the city's average um, medium household income. Logan Square, on the other hand, is taking a more quick turn upscale. Uh, more closely located near the 606. So the 606 is that uh, walking trail. I ain't gonna lie, it is nice now. Hell, a medium household income of 63000 By 2015 alone, the medium household income increased by 42% to 90000 Child, yeah, it really jumped in. To demonstrate the sheer increase in demand in these neighborhoods, Map 4 illustrates the growth rate of uh, total household income in Chicago. The west side is especially shaded dark purple with Humboldt Park and Logan Square seeing 34% and 65% increase respectively. Child, I didn't know the west side had came up like that. Okay. I didn't know, child. I didn't know the west side had came up like that. That's interesting. Wow. Okay. While action was taken to prevent the fast pace of gentrification in the Northwest side, it came much too late. With affordable housing developments emerging after the fact, in addition, the efforts were mainly led by certain grassroots organizations seeking to help the local community maintain its tenant rights and sheer home space. Map 5 shows affordable housing development in Chicago along with the density of development near the 606, such as Lucha Affordable Units. Lucha is one of the grassroots organizations that have been working in Logan Square to preserve its affordability. Now, I do know in the shy. Um, child, the income tax, well, in the state of Illinois, not the income tax, the homeowner's tax, child, they didn't lost their doggone mind. So I do know that a lot of people are uh, moving up out of Illinois because of their tax policies, right? So I do want to put that in there. So Chicago is another city now that, ooh, they got a lot of issues. And the state of Illinois in general, honey, got a lot, a lot of issues. They're broke. Okay. All right. So uh, 
they're showing on this particular map, this is the affordable housing near the 606. Okay. All right. All this leads to the second part of the research question. How could the 606 serve as a lesson for the Pilsen and the Little, Vill and Little Village with the incoming of the Paseo Trail? Moving forward, a simple solution is to implement with inclusivity and collaboration by inviting community members, holding public deliberations, and keeping local needs of top minds. For instance, small local gardeners or gardens rather than impressive greenway projects could help restore the neighborhood's air quality while maintaining its intimacy. Okay, so, oh, this is Inglewood's uh, Echo House. That's pretty. Child, Inglewood was rough. Now, I don't know if it's still rough, but Inglewood was rough back up in the day. Um, that's on the south side, fam. That community garden is really, really cute. It's really, really cute. All right. Uh, the following solution, and, and just uh, just real quick, anybody that um, you live in the city, matter of fact, I, to be honest, I don't care where you really live. It is important for you to be involved in your community. Um, that's especially if you live in these urban cities. And that means going to those city council meetings, okay? Um, when they're having those zoning planning meetings open to the public, you need to go there. You need to be following what is going on. Um, you will be surprised at the amount of information you found you find out. Uh, that's how I was able to keep up with so much stuff in the city of Atlanta because I would go to those meetings. I knew the officials. Um, it just makes a world of a difference. And sometimes the community can move things. Actually, a lot of times they can. It's just that most people aren't involved. Um, I've witnessed it myself personally. Okay, so just a thought, okay? All right, so the following solutions are more in the policy world. One solution is the advocacy for complementary and proactive policymaking that ensures affordable housing programs with the development of apartment buildings. The second solution is the introduction of demolition fees to discourage real estate developers from manipulating zoning regulations and turning single family homes into condominiums and for rent apartment buildings. For instance, in Pilsen, much of the neighborhood is zoned RT4, which is the residential only zoning class. However, <coughs> because many single family homes lie in the zoning class rather than the RS1 single family zoning class, the neighborhood is being upturned by incoming developers who are exploiting the technical leeway and constructing rental units in place. All right. Therefore, 
the provided solution involving zoning codes could save up to 300 single-family homes that are being threatened by the urban wave and real estate market. Okay, so this just kind of goes back to uh, what we were talking about um, earlier when I was just telling you all how planned out social planning is done. And at the city level, at a minimum, they're planning out on a 10-year scale. Uh, worldwide, at a minimum, things are planned out at a 100-year cycle and scale. So at a 100-year cycle and scale, you have big changes going on. When you get to a 400-cycle scale, you have massive changes going on when you're getting into uh, climate changes and shifts. And when you get to a millennial, so that thousand year mark, you're talking about empires, which empire will rule the world. Okay. So I'm doing this to not only refresh our memory and keep on our radar that the amount of gentrification that is currently going on in the Americas, but I want us to start thinking and putting it in content to gentrification of the planet, which is really just, you could say, another form of terraforming, okay? Because remember, he who controls the land controls the people and the resources, okay? So um, just to finish this off with Chicago, why are these solutions needed? Well, as seen in the Northwest side, the creation of gardens and parks enhances the desirabilities of a neighborhood and eventually contributes to the increase in property values and high-end housing constructions, Therefore, Pilsen and Little Village must act during the early phases of Paseo Trail to ensure their voices are heard and policy making in their favors, okay? So, I mean, this should be nothing new to us where they're coming into uh, these poor neighborhoods and buying things up for pennies on the dollar, displacing the people, and turning them into um, chic, hip, urban areas, okay? So just the last one I want to leave on is Atlanta. And uh, this is from Al Jazeera. The black residents fighting Atlanta to stay in their homes. After decades of discrimination, racial injustice, and systematic neglect, four households are resisting the city's effort to remove them from their homes and gentrifying their historical, historically Black neighborhood. Okay, so this is a reoccurring theme. Okay. Okay, this is People's Town, Okay. All right, so law professor Tanya Washington moved into People's Town a decade ago, but the historically black neighborhood has been transformed in the years since, and now she is having to fight to stay. All right, so um, this was this article was put out uh, last year in November.
Atlanta, Georgia, Tanya Washington remembered moving into People's Town, a predominantly working class historic and historically black neighborhood about two miles southeast of Atlanta's downtown a decade ago. Across the street from her home was an old black church, which residents say was at at least a half century old. I moved in on a Saturday, recalls the law professor at Georgia State University, who was originally from D.C. She is sitting in the living room of her 100-year-old home, where she lives with her husband and two children, aged 4 and 18. A television plays muted footage of Black Lives Matter protests in the city. Book-lined shelves add coziness to the room decorated with framed family portraits on the blue walls. On Sunday morning, when I woke up, I heard the sounds of old spirituals like my grandmother used to sing in her choir when I would sit, when I would visit her in South Georgia, the 50-year-old recalls. Because okay, y'all know, those of us that grew up up north, but our family roots are in the south, air summer, most of us, we call, we used to call it going down south. You would go spend the summer uh, with your grandparents down south. I was thinking, what is going on? I thought maybe the Lord was calling me home. Maybe I died and didn't, didn't even realize it. Uh, she chuckles at this memory of a neighborhood that quickly became her home. It was a beautiful church. I thought how incredible it was that I got to wake up and listen to this every Sunday morning. Okay, but yep, that's how, them, how the homes look in people's town. That's exactly how they look, y'all. But the scene she described bears no resemblance to the cookie-cutter suburban houses that now sit across the street where the old church once stood. The song that spilled into Washington's bedroom with the sunshine each Sunday morning have been replaced with silence. About two years ago, the church's owners sold the building to private realtors who, driven by the city's development plans, see, I told you, the cities be planning this stuff out, have targeted People's Town over the past few years. The pews were moved out onto the lawn from where they were sold one by one. Washington watched as the church was demolished and residential homes were built in its place. It was not an unusual sight in a neighborhood where at least every other home has been sold off, yep, renovated or demolished and replaced with a larger, more expensive home. The newcomers trickling into people's town to settle in these properties are more affluent and often whiter than the mostly working class residents who lived in the neighborhood for many decades. The noises are different. The people are different. The whole environment of the neighborhood is completely different. Now, Washington says. <clears throat> okay, so those are the new houses where the old church once stood okay it is a process of gentrification that has already transferred 
transformed the city of Atlanta and major cities across the U.S. intertwining with unresolved racial injustices built into the country's foundation and resulting in mass displacement of low-income Black residents. Peoplestown is one of the last historically Black neighborhoods to be targeted for gentrification in Atlanta, which has one of the highest rates of income inequality in the U.S. and was the fourth fastest gentrifying city in the country between 2000 and 2014. But while it arrived later than in any other parts of the city, when gentrification came, it came with force. Stop displacing black families. In 1974, Atlanta became the first major southern city to elect an African-American mayor, and every mayor since has been African-American. The city celebrates itself as home to scores of civil rights leaders, including Martin Luther King Jr. and John Lewis. Its numerous Black-owned businesses and its strong Black middle and upper class have earned the city the title of America's Black Mecca. But this carefully constructed image clashes sharply with the bright red signs staked into the lawn on Washington's block where just four homes remain where once at least two dozen had stood. Child, Mayor Bottoms, child, she out of there now. I told child that she was um Keisha Lance Bottoms, child. She did a horrible job. I told y'all she was out of there and she destroyed her career. But let's move on. Mayor Bottoms stopped displacing black families. One of the signs reads, referring to Atlanta's current mayor, Keisha Land Bottoms. She's not the mayor anymore. I think uh Last week, they elected a new mayor. Stop predatory use of intimate domain is printed on another. Okay? But I can tell y'all that this started, gentrification started under Mayor Shirley Franklin, uh, another um, melanated mayor, a woman. That's when it started. Okay? Because the mayor before her, Campbell, mm, dang, y'all, that name just hit me. Hmm. Campbell, uh, child, he had got locked up for fraud. He was off the chain, honey. But yeah, when uh, Campbell, not uh, Campbell, because Campbell wound up going to the slammer, he was a hot mess, y'all, for fraud. Uh, they were saying that he uh, was getting kickbacks from the strip clubs because the stripping culture is huge in Atlanta. Always has been, always will be. But under Campbell, honey, they was really kicking it up, having a funky good time. Uh, Freak Neek and stuff was going on, this, that, and the third. So when um, Shirley Franklin came in, that's when they started implementing their gentrification plan and then they also, uh, under Shirley, they started shutting down the Buckhead Bar District, okay? Because the uh, old money, rich Caucasian folks in Buckhead got tired of the young people partying, starting on Thursday, honey. 
all the way up till Sunday. And uh, the events, some of the violence that came with it, okay? Because you had a couple of little incidents because uh, folks don't know how to act. And the uh, rich white folks wanted that bar district gone. And uh, under Shirley Franklin, she pushed for that to happen. And now the Buckhead bars are no longer. So now Buckhead is boring, child. Back to um, just older white folk. Ain't nobody trying to live in Buckhead like that. You definitely don't go to Buckhead to party. Now it's in Midtown. But uh, Keisha Land Bottoms wind up destroying her career because the crime had gotten so out of control in Atlanta and specifically that Buckhead area, honey, that that old money was like, uh-uh, you, you out of here. Okay. And, uh, the, the, uh, the break-ins and stuff at, um, Phipps Plaza and Lenox, Okay, because Phipps is more expensive, y'all, than Linux, but unless they done changed it. But nonetheless, the upscale malls breaking up in people's cars and all of that. It's a couple of celebrities had they stuff ripped off. I think Usher was one of it. One of them, honey, had a bunch of jewelry and stuff ripped off in his car. So they was just pretty much fed up with Keisha Lance Bottoms. Plus, Keisha messed up, hemming and humming cheesing and grinning uh, with the celebrities, particularly uh, T.I. and them. And it just destroyed her career. It wasn't a good look. Um, so I don't know who, who her advisors were, but child, she messed up her career big time. All right. But nonetheless, let's just be clear that gentrification happened, started happening under Mayor Shirley Franklin, okay? But in their defense, they did give a disclosure. They told you all exactly what they were going to do. And um, they hold all of those uh, the planning sessions. They uh, disclosed that stuff to the public. They put it out there for the public to have an opportunity to come and voice their concerns, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I don't know if that's how it works in other cities. I can only speak from my experience in Atlanta. All right, so let's continue. So this is in People Town, People's Town. In 2012, a series of storms res uh, resulted in severe flooding on Washington's block as runoff rainwater overwhelmed a combined water and sewer system built beneath it and caused a major overspill. At least six homes were damaged. I remember that. The city covered the cost of cleaning and repairing the damaged homes, at least one of, the, uh, one of which was flooded with several inches of sewage as the city's failure to upgrade the system had caused the overspills. Yep, because again, when um, Shirley Franklin took office, that was one of the main things on her list to do was to fix Atlanta's um, water and sewer sewage issues, right? Until this day, you know, it would be interesting if somebody could do a price comparison of water and sewage bills 
and major metropolitan cities. But child, Atlanta, it, it's just sickening the amount of money you pay for water and sewage in the city of Atlanta. And that's because they need a total new system. It's well over a hundred years old and it's crumbling. Okay. And people's town was not the only neighborhood in the city of Atlanta that flooded because of it. All right. But residents say the city did not finish all the repairs. And in response, several residents sued, about a year later in 2013, the city offered to buy the damaged homes as part of the settlement with the families and in order to construct a pond on the location overspill uh, over to mitigate flooding in the neighborhood. The city allegedly told the residents that they, if they did not accept the city's offer, they would end up receiving far less in the future and warned them the city was planning to eventually take the whole block of homes anyway. Shall I remember this? While a few of the families settled with the city at the time and parted their homes, most opted to refuse the city's offers and stay. In 2014, however, the city approved the use of eminent domain, which allows the government to expropriate private property for public use to construct a pond and a park at the site. In 2015, the other families on the block received letters from the city informing them it would need to acquire their properties. Okay. Um, so this is the, uh, the green area where more than two dozen homes stood and where the city is planning to construct a pond and a park. Child. In place of their homes, it planned to develop a 65 million green infrastructure project that is expected to include a Japanese garden, gazebo, several retention ponds, and bioretention area to treat storm water. Now y'all see how they swagging that out, baby. You see how they swagging that out, planning to swag that out. The decision altered the lives of the families on the block most of whom buckled under the threat of the city's eminent domain ordinance and gave up their homes. Residents who settled with the city were made to sign non-disclosure agreements, banning them from sharing the amount they had agreed on with other residents. Child. Mm, 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 mm. There is still no pond or park in People's Town but the planned project has already transformed the neighborhood. Washington, Washington's and just three other homes remain. All the others have been demolished and replaced by open green space. It just didn't feel right, Washington reflects. My house was never damaged from the flooding. How do you go from wanting to buy a few homes to suddenly needing the entire block? Because that was already planned, y'all. She suspected the city was abusing eminent domain to drive private investment in the neighborhood. So, along with a handful of other residents, she decided to challenge it. What followed offered them an insight, they say, into institutional racism and alleged corruption that has shaped Atlanta's gentrification. Now, let's be clear. I want to be clear. 
the city of Atlanta is ran by melanated folks. Let's be clear. The city of Atlanta is ran by melanated folks. Okay? So we can't put this on Caucasian people. All right? The only area that is um, heavily white, of course, is Buckhead. And Buckhead, uh, because Lance Bottoms, Keisha Lance Bottoms, did such a horrible job <clears throat> with the crime, they Buckhead wanted to break off from the city of Atlanta. But Buckhead is still under the control of the city of Atlanta, which is ran by melanated folks. And I'm talking everybody, everybody, everybody is melanated. Okay. Now, the last time I was in the mix, which was uh, six, seven years ago, even the city camp council, all melanated folks, with the exception it was only one Caucasian lady. Now, I don't know if that's changed. Okay? So that means your mayor, that means police officials, everybody is melanated. DA, everybody is melanated. Okay, so you have melanated people making these decisions. So what follow offered them an insight, they say, into an institute into the institutional racism and alleged corruption that has shaped Atlanta's gentrification. Decades of discrimination, racial injustice, and systematic neglect of low-income and black neighborhoods may have sealed the fate of people towns long before the 2012 flood, but the residents of these four homes are determined to stay put. White flight. The civil rights movements of the 1950s and 1960s, when black Americans challenged the system of segregation, commonly known as Jim Crow, that was designed to limit their rights after centuries of slavery, was accompanied by a process of white flight from the inner cities. It was no different for Atlanta, even as from the 1950s on, it referred to it as the city that was too busy to hate, and local leaders worked to build an image of the city as one of the economic prosperity and racial progress. Okay, so those of us that really know what shook down with uh, slavery will really know what shook down with civil rights, really know what shook shook down with Jim Crow. This really should not be a surprise as we fast forward hundreds of years later, we're talking about gentrification. It was no different for Atlanta, even as from the 1950s on, it referred to itself as the city that was too busy to hate and local leaders worked together. Yeah, 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 we talked about that. According to Kevin Cruz, professor of history at Princeton University, who wrote a book on the white flight from Atlanta during desegregation in the 1950s and 60s, when African Americans were permitted to expand from the congested neighborhoods, they had been co-signed co to the formerly all-white parts of the city, 
they were threatened by white supremacists and their homes were bombed. But when terror campaigns and pleas to public officials failed, white residents packed up, sold their homes, and deserted the city entirely. Okay, so even with this said, I want you all to think in the content of, or the context of, that was planned also, what they're calling desegregation. That was planned. It was planned. So in other words, it was planned to have melanated people move back into the city. And then in turn, they knew that Caucasian people would move out of the city. By the 1970s, white people, with the help of government homeowner schemes that were denied to African-Americans, had abandoned the inner city in mass and established communities in the suburbs with the aim of maintaining all white neighborhoods. Okay, so I say again, that is still planned. You see where they even noted in here that the government was involved. Mm -hmm. All of that was planned. And I would even go as far to say these gentrification schemes, I call that um, little localized resets. Okay. Since the country's inception, wealth disparities have been shaped by racial injustices and discrimination. In 2016, the net worth of a typical white family was nearly 10 times greater than that of a black family, according to the Brookings Institution, an American think tank. So when white people left the inner cities, Capital quickly followed, okay? I mean, that's self-explanatory because isn't the reverse happening today as white families are coming back to the cities, okay? Uh, T. Troutman, an urban development researcher in Atlanta-based community community organizer tells Al Jazeera that as capital moved to the suburbs, industries and jobs that working class city residents were dependent on followed suit. That is true. That is true. Most of the jobs in Atlanta, the companies are in the suburbs, okay? You have the city, uh, in the city of Atlanta, most of the jobs are, um, Governmental. Okay. I'm trying to think of a company. You only have a, literally a hand few. I think Georgia Pacific is in the city. Uh, AT&T, I can think, I'm thinking of the big AT&T building downtown right next to the Fox Theater. Uh, those are the only two big ones, of, of course. Um, maybe a hospital. Um, but the all of the big corporations are in the suburbs. All right. While it was uh, predominantly white, people leaving the city's affluent flight also added to the capital drain. As higher income black and brown residents also left, Troutman said. Deindustrialization happened at the same time as capital flight. 
turning cities into these destitute spaces, Troutman explained. So again, to me, this is all planned. It's all planned. And I'm calling them mini resets. Gentrification is mini reset. Austerity policies were then rolled out in the later part of the 1970s and accelerated in the 1980s when former U.S. President Ronald Reagan slashed federal aids to the cities, this resulting in dramatic cutbacks to social programs that scores of already marginalized communities relied on and exuberated the social and economic issues in the city. Yes, Reagan was brought in to bust up the middle class. Let me say that again. Reagan was brought in to bust up the middle class. So meaning the middle class used to be made up of um, industrialized warehouse workers plus uh, your um, white collar middle class. Okay. When he came in, he busted up the unions and that totally shifted the middle class to this day. So it created a larger, lower income bracket. More people fell into the lower income bracket and made the middle class smaller. That came in with the Reagan error, okay? And they used it as justification for the high inflation that was going on in the 70s with Jimmy Carter. But make no mistake about it, family, this was all planned. And as the plan continues, you are literally seeing the dismantling of the middle class continues. Because the middle class is getting smaller and smaller. Make no mistake about it. This is planned. And we are literally in the midst of a worldwide reset at a large scale where everything will be shook up. Okay? Change happens in increments. Okay, it's like the, you know, having a, a frog in the pot. And they all sitting in this pot of boiling water and not realizing that it is boiling to their demise. Okay, so again, I want us to start thinking in terms of gentrification as miniature resets all right so i think we're almost done with this okay over uh the past several decades cities have attempted to attract outside investments to transform urban neglect and decay and decay into development and renewal by luring wealthier and predominantly white people to return to the inner cities in order to increase the city's tax base. 
especially in the form of sales and property tax, which are major sources of revenue for local governments. But as has become clear to some residents of People Town, urban development and economic progress often begets displacement, dispossession, and increased violence for Black and low-income city residents. Uh, so it says urban renewal means Negro renew removal. James Baldwin. People Town's residents are all too familiar with the unjust patterns of urban development. When the city officials wanted to link downtown Atlanta to the expanding white suburbs in the 1950s, three major interstates were constructed in People's Town: Summer Hill and Mechanicsville ripping through the heart of these long-established communities and separating the sister neighborhoods from each other. See, now I didn't learn something. They didn't learned me something new, baby. I didn't know People's Town, Summer Hill, and Mechanicsville used to all be connected. All of those were melanated neighborhoods, okay? Summer Hill and Mechanicsville, um, they still are, although you have gentrification going on there as well. I didn't know that, child. They done learned me something new. In 1957, the city conceived of another urban plan, I'm sorry, urban renewal plan, and brought up about 600 acres of land in portions of Summerhill, Mechanicsville, and People Town, removing thousands of black residents and closing more than 100 black-owned businesses in order to make room for housing, businesses, schools, and parks, that would attract middle-income, largely white families. How they did that in 1957? Child. According to Larry Keating, a professor of city and regional planning at Georgia Tech Research Institute, the project was designed to also create a buffer between the low-income black neighborhoods and the central business district in one of the many attempts to keep Atlanta's downtown a desirable location for middle white class, uh, for middle class white people, by expelling black residents from the area. Oh, child! The project, however, never came to fruition, and the massive lot of land stood vacant until 1964, when Avon Eiley Jr., Atlanta's mayor at the time decided to build a stadium, now the Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. Keating says the plan was likely to thwart community proposals to use the land for building public housing. Oh, child, I'm really learning a lot, child. I didn't learn something new for building public housing for low-income Black residents. Whoa! Now, I want y'all to be clear. These are still black mayors. Let's be clear now. Child. The trumpets of urban renewal and economic growth once again reverberated through the city while more black residents saw their homes de de demolished for extra parking space around the stadium. Mm. In 1966, the body of Harold Prather an unarmed black man collapsed 
along with the homes after a white police officer shot and killed the 25-year-old in Summerhill. Mm. Prather was stopped on a traffic violation and informed of an open warrant for his arrest. The young man ran from the police who responded by shooting him in the hip side, hip and side. Frustrations in the neighborhood, which was settled in 1865. Okay, so y'all know what happened in 1865. Wasn't it uh, the freeing of the supposed slaves by formerly enslaved African-Americans had reached their boiling point and day, days long protests and rioted erupted. When Mayor Allen attempted to pacify the protests by standing atop a police control car and speaking to the angry crowd through a megaphone, he was met with brick stones and bottles. Baby, they wasn't playing. The crowd drowned out his plea for law and order, chanting black power, white devil. This process was replayed in cities across the United States. James Baldwin, the celebrated writer and activist, put it bluntly in 1963, urban renewal means Negro removal. Child, they done lurked me something new. But I told y'all, this gentrification, it's all planned, fam. It's all planned. Following the same trend in the 1990s, as Atlanta prepared to host the Olympic Games, the city once again took the bulldozers and demolished its public housing. Atlanta was the first American city to in introduce public housing in 1935, and by 2011, it was also the first to have demolished all of it. Yep, now, I didn't know Atlanta was the first. That I did not know. Child. And those of us that uh, grew up up north, you up northerners, they don't have the stack projects like we used to. Uh, I would say theirs are more like the row houses. In Chicago, what we would call a row house. Well, it was because they are no more. Okay. When the renewal plans for Atlanta's dilapidated public housings were introduced, the low-income Black residents were promised affordable housing units in the new mixed income apartments that were to be built on top of the rubble of their former homes. Child, I remember all that now. But stringent screening processes, which barred low-income residents from returning if anyone in their household had a criminal record or they did not have full employment, made it so very few displaced residents were permitted to return. I remember that, child. That was hotly contested. I specifically remember that. So it was a lot of folks that could not go into the um, the newly built up stuff. And so what happened was they had to wind up going where the vouchers would accept them. And um, I do know that uh, Clayton County, uh, Riverdale was one of them. And then Riverdale started to get bad. And Riverdale is in like uh, the, the, the southern part. Uh south of Atlanta, okay, right next to the airport, all right? So this whole part about stringent screening process, 
Mr. Catch-22 fam, you know, now, not in any way am I trying to justify the many resetting and controlling of the social, ec social economic aspects and planning out society. But on the other hand, melanated people in general have to really do some serious cleaning up and start regulating self and regulating neighborhoods. Which is why I always use the term, don't come to me about no group or no nation. If you can't control yourself, you can't control your home, you can't control your block. Okay, so this is an issue across the Americas with melanated people. Now, I'm under the guise that it's a deeper issue on why that happens, okay? Of course, the surface issues are poverty and generational poverty, et cetera, et cetera. But to me, this is just my lowly opinion, the deeper issue of why melanated neighborhoods continue to have so much strife is because you had a mixing of groups that never really got along from generations to generations to generations, okay? And because we don't understand true history, now a small amount of us are starting to understand true history. We get it. So just because you are melanated, AK black, don't mean that we all came from the same place. It doesn't mean we came from the same place. Therefore, we didn't, we all are going to get along because we have been warring with each other via bloodlines for centuries. Okay? You got the European bloodline, yep, the melanated European bloodline. You got the uh, little bit of the African bloodline. If you want to throw in the African and Asian bloodline together, I'm speaking of melanated. And then you have the indigenous people to the Americas have been warring for centuries. And particularly the indigenous melanated people of the land warring with the Europeans, the Africans, and Asians, okay? So none of that has changed because of the way history has been rewritten and because of the resets. We think that all melanated people in the Americas come from the same area, same region, are of the same bloodlines. Therefore, why is it so much violence against each other? Why can't they get along? In my opinion, it is because of those old rifts from centuries ago of the indigenous melanated people of the Americas being invaded by those other melanated bloodlines, okay? And plus, even within the indigenous people of the Americas, 
amongst each other battling because some of us did not want to integrate and do business with these other bloodlines. And I think that's why today melanated people mixed together just doesn't work because there are different agendas, right? And some of the same people that are making the decisions on rezoning and, or gentrification slash mini resets are of those same invading bloodlines, okay? All right. So others receive Section 8 vouchers, which <clears throat> subsidize costs in the private housing market, but which also limit the areas recipients can live in, depending on which landlords accept the vouchers. Yep, exactly what I said. Many former public housing residents who were not eligible to return were made homeless. According to Troutman, some parts of Atlanta where public housing once stood are now gentrified and are the most expensive parts of the city, while other areas still remain completely vacant since the housing was de demolished. And that is so true. Okay. In the years leading up to the Olympics in 1996, city leaders once again loudly touted economic progress and marketed Atlanta as the cradle of civil rights movement while promising enormous benefits for the community. At the same time, roughly 30,000 low-income residents were evicted or displaced from the city. The city moved to clean the streets of anything that contradicted the glossy spectacle of the up-and-coming international hub that Atlanta leaders intended to portray to the world. Thousands of homeless people, mostly of them African-Americans, were unlawfully arrested and thrown into newly built Atlanta city detention cities where the poverty would not distract from the city's newly polished image. The city allocated more land for the construction of the Centennial Olympic Stadium located adjacent to the Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, adding more displaced black residents to the thousands who were expelled decades earlier. People's Town once again felt the heavy burden of Atlanta's development. According to Haytham Shata, an Atlanta-based civic engineer, the area where the Olympic Stadium, now called Turner Field, was to be built was plagued by historic flooding documented from at least the 1950s as the location was the site of a stream through which a large amount of runoff drainage passed. Okay, child, so they've been, been knowing that that was a flood zone. The city therefore constructed two culverts or channels from the two major interstates to redirect the runoff water into a junction box located underneath People's Town's now contested block to divert flooding from around the Olympic Stadium. Child, says Bill Eisenhower, an Atlanta-based engineer and analyst from the Metropolitan Atlanta Urban Watershed Institute. Child. So they um 
redirected the water into the people's town's little neighborhood on that little block. And they're going to sit up there and try to play crazy, baby. I told y'all this stuff is playing. The junction box was already the site where at least 140 kilometers, 90 miles of combined sewer lines joined. Dang! Before releasing into a larger trunk line that runs partly down Atlanta Avenue, where Washington's home is located, and into a combined sewer overflow basin and eventually into a wastewater treatment plant. Child, shut the front door. They've been knowing this. Always trying to be slick. According to Eisenhower, the residents who lived in the neighborhood at the time, before constructing the uh, culverts to reroute the streams to People's Town, the Georgia Department of Transportation had assured the communities that a relief trunk line would be constructed from the junction box in Peopletown through Grant Park, a wealthier and predominantly white community located about two miles from Peoplestown and in the nearby combined sewer overflow basin in order to relieve the pressure on the combined sewer and water system in Peoplestown. Child, they so low down. So when they had planned them, well, I wonder when they said that. Maybe that was in the 50s. No, because um, Grant Park um, didn't um, start back getting white. Uh, what was it? Like 90, maybe 5-ish, 96-ish. Okay, maybe that was. But anyway, but the relief trunk was never built. Child, they so low down. They, the city, thought it was better to disrupt the lives in of the poor and black neighborhood rather than the wealthy and white neighborhood, says Columbus Ward, a pro prominent neighborhood advocate and longtime resident of Peoplestown. Baby! Despite the dramatic increase of water flow into the junction box, the city did not build additional stormwater storage capacity upstream from People Town or add the relief trunk. Eisenhower explained, causing the system to get overwhelmed during storms, the pressure of which results in the lid of the junction box and manholes popping off and sewers spilling out into the neighborhood. Child, that's so disgusting. You know this mess don't make no sense, right? It makes absolutely no sense. Since People Town sit on a low basin, the more the city was built up after the Olympics, the more People's Town was inundated with stormwater runoff and concrete that smothers the ground of the city. We have all this development happening around us, but we still have that same stormwater sewage system that was not made to accommodate this much growth. Washington explained. So we end up fl with flooding. Yeah, because remember I told y'all Shirley Franklin, that's one of the things that was on her initiative that she was supposed to be fixing that sewer system. After the 2012 flooding in Peoplestown, Kasim Reed, now he was the mayor after uh, Shirley Franklin, y'all. Atlanta's mayor at the time had hired a national consulting firm to estimate the cost of constructing the relief trunk line, according to Eisenhower, but nothing came of it, likely because the construction of the trunk line would be too costly. 
According to residents, the city also failed to adequately clean the drains, which has compounded the problem. The city has created a problem, and then they use that problem to further gentrification and displace us from our homes, Washington said. Child, I don't think I'm going to read the rest of this. This is so depressing. Um, So you all can read the rest of this because this is a lot longer than I anticipated this particular uh, podcast to be. But this is a darn good article on what went on in People's Town. And um, I will definitely link this article so you can um, read the rest of it yourself. But I just wanted to give you a gist of up close of two examples in Chicago and then in Atlanta, uh, what was going on with gentrification, what has been going on, not only recently since the uh, early 2000s in America, but this has been going on forever, family specifically hundreds of years. And I am going to use deductive reasoning to say even thousands of years, okay? That's what the resets are all about. So gentrification is really nothing more than miniature resets to blend into the master reset that resets that happens on the cycle of 100-year uh, cycles, 400-year cycles, and then millennial cycles, all right? So I just wanted to bring that to you, family. Um, I highly encourage the family, if you're not subscribed to us, to uh, hit the subscribe button, like, and share. Uh, this is Rhonda with WTUZ Radio Podcast. I wish everyone well on this Monday. Peace and love, family.